Welcome to the second of our daily edition podcast this week. If you're joining us fresh from London International Shipping Week, don't worry. You can catch up on yesterday's opener, exploring the big ticket themes, keeping the industry's executives awake at night. Each day, we're going to be exploring different aspects of the debates at the heart of the industry. And today, we're looking at how the industry is handling compliance risk. But before I get started, I just wanted to say a big thank you to our sponsors, DNV, who are helping us bring you these daily missives from around London International Shipping Week. Thank you, guys. Now, on with the podcast. The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast from Lloyd's List Intelligence, delivering you expert analysis on the stories shaping shipping. To find out more about our actionable maritime insight, data, and analytics, visit lloydslistintelligence.com. Eighteen months in, it's perhaps not a shocker to hear that the shipping industry is still struggling with the complexities of the ever-evolving sanctions compliance regime that they find themselves navigating. But the geopolitical realities of the situation that lies ahead, well, it's starting to hit home. We are trading in an increasingly bipolar political environment. And while no risk analyst worth talking to is going to target their crystal ball settings beyond a five-year horizon, because, well, frankly, anything beyond that is basically glorified soothsaying, as far as I can tell, there was a general consensus yesterday inside the Lloyds building, where I found myself sitting for much of the day as part of London International Shipping Week festivities, that Russia-focused sanctions are now here to stay, at least for the next five to ten years minimum. The genie is not going back in the bottle on this one. Shipping can only expect the compliance complexities to increase from here on. So, I wanted to explore what that really means in today's edition. And when we say we're entering a bipolar political world, does that genuinely mean that shipping is going to have to take sides in where it's prepared to trade? We're talking about sanctions here, of course. But this is more than simply looking at what trades you can and can't do. Sanctions are a foreign policy weapon, let's not forget that. And the financial and technical services that underpin shipping, well, they have certainly been politicised. Arguably, they've been weaponized. That process has reduced the markets that insurers, lawyers and bankers can offer services to. It's reduced the parts that ships can get access to and the safety and maintenance services required to keep the global fleet afloat. It's also seen a significant number of traders move away from the mainstream scrutiny of those well-established bodies and rules that the industry has fought so hard to establish over the last 30 to 40 years. This is not just about sanctions. This is about the global rules-based order that shipping relies on crumbling before our very eyes. But before we get sucked into that, let's examine the big picture first. Does a bipolar political environment necessarily result in a bipolar trading environment, for example? Well, according to the senior political risk advisor at Herminius, Dr. Dominic Donald, that presupposes a schism that didn't even occur during the Cold War, and it presupposes that China is going to become the enemy, at least in US, EU, UK terms, and that, in his view, seems like a pretty unlikely scenario. Um, I think we need to differentiate between bipolar political and bipolar trading. Um, I think we are entering a bipolar uh, political world. Um, I think we kind of have entered it, frank frankly. Um, uh, and I think it's we have entered that world, um, or rather it, it is a world, um, because we've got sanctions 
that are going to stay in the medium to long term. Um, and I don't see an end to the war between Russia and Ukraine that will not see sanctions remaining. So if uh, Russia wins, in inverted commas, um, it's lost the strategic sort of battle, as it were, but if it, it can claim a victory out of this, then uh, the reality is that the West would feel embarrassed and would keep sanctions in place, mm. essentially as, as revenge, as punishment. Um, if uh, there's a stalemate, then the sanctions are going to be remain in place to kind of coerce Russia into being a decent actor. And if uh, Ukraine wins, then sanctions are going to be linked to uh, either formally or informally to Russian compliance with any peace deal or ceasefire uh, and Russia won't comply with them because Russia, Putin's Russia, never complies with deals. Um, so uh, we've got a bipolar world because sanctions are going to be in place for the medium to long term as a function of the war. Uh, on the trading side, however, things are a bit different. I think um, uh, obviously there's the issue of, of, of Russia as, a, as an economic entity and essentially it has been amputated from uh, the European Union and I don't see that changing. We're looking at Russia being an enemy for for the foreseeable future, um, uh, which therefore means that uh, the European Union, which has already undertaken uh, basically all of the strategic shifts it needs to do to amputate Russia, it's going to remain committed to that amputation uh, in the in the uh, near to medium term at least. Um, so, as an economic entity, Russia is essentially going to be. Uh, uh, part of that bipolar world. But uh, in terms of the broader trading world, um, it's not going to be bipolar, partly because, in essence, can there really be a bipolar trading world that presupposes a kind of disengagement between two rival entities that we didn't even see in the, in the Cold War, um, when the Soviet Union uh, and uh, states allied against the Soviet Union um, actually did quite a lot of trade together. So I, you know, I'm not sure you can ever see uh, proper um, uh, sort of bipolar trading um, sort of situation. Um, I think we will have elements of it as seen with Russia, but I think by and large uh, the reason why we're not going to see a proper bipolar trading order, um, even loosely defined, um, is because of China, which needs uh, the world trading order to keep functioning and for its own internal political reasons um, needs that functioning to be as smooth uh, and as sort of preferential to China um, as possible. Now, Dominic was talking to me there on the sidelines of a conference that I was moderating. I say sidelines, I actually dragged the poor man into a cloakroom. But I did so because during the discussion, he came up with a wonderful analogy about global macroeconomic playground politics that I couldn't not get him to repeat for you here on the podcast. Yes, um, I, I think there is a, there's a kind of a fairly general assumption that uh, Russia and China want the same thing out of uh, the world uh, order, if you might term it that, um, but actually, they don't. Um, Russia wants to break up the world order and China wants to sort of co-opt it. 
and the, the, the playground analogy is, broadly speaking, um, if we think of the world as a playground and, the, uh, and countries as children um, uh, who are let out into the playground come break time, then uh, what Russia wants is a playground with no teachers and no rules. And that's because Putin knows that while Russia might not be the biggest child in the playground... Uh, he's probably the meanest and is able, it is ready to push things more than anybody else is. So that means he can get his way. So China uh, uh, looks at things from, I think, a completely different perspective. It wants the playground to function. So it wants rules and it wants lots of teachers in the playground and ideally as many of them as possible to be Chinese. It wants the playground to function to its uh, advantage, whereas uh, Russia would just like it to be a uh, a kind of primordial mess. <laughs> Dare I ask in that analogy where the EU and the UK sit in the playground? Uh, the e- EU and UK sit in the the realm, I think, of of um, uh, teachers who uh, organise themselves beforehand about what it is that the playground should be doing and shouldn't be doing, um, but then slightly go off in opposite directions where they can't quite see each other uh, and may not necessarily then uh, police things exactly the way that, that the other would. At this point in the podcast, I am going to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors. Maritime decarbonisation targets are becoming more ambitious and the journey ahead is both complex and full of uncertainties. DMV's latest Maritime Forecast to 2050 report investigates all decarbonisation options to help shipping plot the right course. This is the decisive decade for shipping. Actions taken now will shape our future for generations. Download the report at dnv.com and join us on this journey. A big thank you to DNV there for supporting this podcast. But back to the topic in hand. So that's the big picture. But close to the water is where we start talking about the sanctions in terms of the Dark Fleet. Now, when Noiseless talks about the Dark Fleet, we're doing so based on a well-established methodology that we've developed. And we've done so to track these anonymous shipping companies that have sprung up in the wake of the Ukraine war to employ old tankers outside of the scrutiny of Western standards to lift Russian oil where Western sanctions cannot restrict them. But it's a label that is somewhat abused, shall we say, by other journalists and uh, institutions. And it's a term that is not necessarily appreciated by everybody, particularly those in the dark fleet, but also those in the insurance market. Well, I think there's a lot of problems with the the, the, the definition of what we so-called the so-called dark fleet. Um, the dark fleet is no more than um, a set of ship um, shipping that has been taken um, uh, and registered in jurisdictions which are not subject to EU G7 sanctions, uh, and then access their service providers from jurisdictions which are not subject to EU G7 uh, providers. Um, and it would be absolutely incorrect to suggest that there aren't insurers, classification societies, um, and so on, which uh, cannot service a an Indian vessel lifting oil from Russia above price cap and taking it to India. Um, so that trade is perfectly lawful. The phrase dark fleet somehow suggests that it's an unlawful trade, that something um, 
unlawful, shady, dodgy is actually going on. That's absolutely not the question. I suppose what surprised all of us is the speed with which that dark fleet grew in the first half of this year. Um, it's certainly seen um, a reduction in the number of ships that have been um, insured by the international group. You know, not a big reduction, but, a, but there's still uh, a small reduction. Uh, but to suggest that those ships are not properly insured, properly classed, and so on, is, is, is not necessarily uh, um, a logical consequence of those vessels being positioned in jurisdictions which aren't subject to the EU G7 sanctions. What we are seeing is the creation of a new market. If the um, insurance providers, if uh, the flags, um, if the classification societies that are subject to EU G7 can't provide their services, then somebody else will. And that is going to mean that there'll be a growth in vessels performing this trade probably for the uh, foreseeable future or for at least as long as uh, modern sanctions uh, continue to exist. That was the dulcet tones of Mike Sawhouse, Head of External Affairs at North Standard PNI. And I thought it best to get him to explain that because it's not just the sanctions and the compliance risk that's evolving. The dark fleet itself is starting to come in from the cold. Those that have made a name for themselves as Putin's tanker owners of choice may not find the leap into mainstream trades easy to make and charterers will understandably be a little bit nervous about reputational risk. But the return of dark fleet ships to other trades complicates counterparty risk for the rest of the market, besides making its future earnings harder to predict. Ultimately, the dark fleet represents too big a proportion of the world's tanker fleet to simply write off. But shipping has to deal with the reality today. This makes scrutiny of trading ships' histories more important than ever. Whatever happens next, there is going to be an increased need for accurate and objective risk and compliance analysis. The dark fleet may be coming out of the shadows, but the cloud it has cast over the rest of the industry is not going anywhere. Also, by the way, it's not just me that's saying this. If you haven't already got hold of a copy of the latest Lloyd's Register Global Maritime Trends 2050 report, and I highly recommend you do, it's very good, it makes the point very effectively that the current lack of global cooperation over governance issues significantly increases the risk of dark fleet activities becoming a much wider problem for the industry to deal with. And what of the much maligned average ship owner? Where do they sit in all this? We've covered the compliance gap in, in previous editions of this podcast where the average ship owner is frankly struggling to navigate the complexities of compliance with banks, insurers and counterparties. It's a legal risk that some of the more upfront lawyers will fully admit to not understanding themselves. Here's Eleanor Midwinter, partner at Whitball Grine. I think if we look at the average ship owner who crosses my desk, um, they are probably a fairly sophisticated and, and large ship owner, so they will have internal compliance teams who are you know, extremely good at passing this information. Um, if we look at the average in terms of the actual commercial average, then of course you've got smaller companies, um, they don't have the economies of scale that are needed to do the level of screening with specialist tools uh, that they would ideally like to be doing. Um, it's extremely difficult for even a very intelligent commercial person to pass um, the level of detail and complexity that you have in the legislation, which is, is different between regimes. Um, so I think that some companies are finding it difficult and I think that some companies are unfortunately finding it necessary to self-sanction and, and avoid legitimate and profitable, profitable trades, um, which is, is not ideal for business. Mm. Um, and you know, while it's been said that that's possibly an intended consequence um, of the sanctions to, to try and sort of block out entire countries, you know, 
the, the regulators and governments do have the option for um, full countrywide sanctions, and they have not chosen to adopt it in this case. So I think it's... In your view, I mean, is, is the industry still having to navigate grey areas? I mean, we, we're not talking about a singular uh, compliance regime here. We're talking about the US, where you're having to deal with OFAC and state and sometimes even justice. You're talking about off in the UK, in the EU, now on its 11th package. I mean, they are all broadly pointing in the same direction, of course, but there are key differences, and that just increases the complexity, presumably. Yeah, it 100% does. So, I mean, we used to broadly find that uh, for clients who wanted to be, you know, fully, fully um, compliant or, or best practices, they could just follow the US sanctions. And broadly speaking, that would always be the, the highest. Mm. Um, and now what we're finding, we're having to advise is, uh, it depends what you're doing as, it, as to where the risk lies. And, and at the moment, because of the divergence between the EU and UK, the UK is presenting some problems. Um, partly because um, some of the uh, parts of the regime do not align with the US and EU, quite fundamentally, in ways that affect shipping. A couple of key points, you've got an issue around having uh, subjective tests in the legislation, um, but then no ability to um, get out of uh, enforcement. There's there's no sort of defence for your subjective reasoning. It's, It's actually a strict liability. Um, but the other key issue is when you're already in a contract or a long-term project, you've actually got differences between the licensing regimes. Um, and so, you know, we've had situations where a client, for example, needs to refinance their vessels. Um, and right up until very, very late, in, you know, after a series of very difficult commercial negotiations, um, it was unclear whether or not that, that transaction could proceed. Um, and that was vital to stopping their assets falling into the hands of sanctioned entities. So I think that it, that sort of highlights that you can have complexities which I think are unintended. Mm. Um, and even when there is broad policy consensus between the, com- the countries that are involved. But it's not just a question of finding a good lawyer like Eleanor. Although her services and those of her peers who are actually able to help are in very high demand. And generally speaking, there is a serious dearth of expertise available to the industry to deal with this complexity. Catherine Lagerberg is a risk advisor at Deloitte, specialising in maritime, and she still sees a worryingly analogue and simplistic approach to compliance from many companies. To be clear here, I'm talking about those people who still consider a quick check on the sanctions list to be adequate due diligence. It's not. The conventional uh, compliance, it's 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 like uh, Stone Age now. It's... it's uh, we are not uh, anyway like any. I think um, the industry, or not even like just the shipping, but the world is not prepared uh, for the complexity of what's happening due to the sanctions. I think because it's uh, we can see like uh, the government uh, is uh, focusing on it, like especially in Norway and probably in other countries too. They're making like new subsidiaries, if you can call it that, under the government that are going to enforce sanctions and give advisory. But that's like next year. <laughs> and how are you going to find all these analysts? Uh, and how are you going to train them? So how many years will it take before they are up and running and uh, like um, have the competence to understand, well, this nitty gritty sensor actually is wanted by this country or this country needs these grains or this food like the North Korea and Russia now like it's not an apple for an apple anymore it's maybe food for arms or so it, it's yeah you need to understand the whole um, geopolitical game the whole time and it's changing every week 
But as Catherine knows, this is not a simple evolution of risk that the companies are dealing with. The increase in complexity has come hard and fast, and it's not stopping. I think uh, the complexity has uh, maybe increased like exponentially the last uh, year and a half. Uh, it's It's been there before. Uh, and you see the, the sanctions, geopolitics, um, HSC staying uh, sustainable, committing to environmental um, programs and developments. They've been there and they've been growing. But I, but I think what changed last year uh, with the Russian second invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, by Russia, which, uh, which um, I think it, it quickly changed the whole business world and how we see uh, and tackle external uh, threats. Uh, because uh, nobody could have been prepared to what happened, I think. Um, it um, Maybe it went from being a governmental problem to uh, a problem and responsibility more uh, belonging to each company. Um, and um, I think... Uh, Maybe we've before we could talk about alliances and geopolitical uh, risks that change maybe every year or, or every few years, but then we we saw that um, these risks were changing maybe uh, every month, and now we can even see uh, risks and alliances and geopolitical uh, threats uh, change every week or even day to day. So I think. Uh, Maybe the industry and the like, the businesses out there are just like in a vacuum state, more or less. They're just, um, oh shit, what just happened? And uh, we don't really know how to proceed because it's so overwhelming. Um, so I think maybe that's that's kind of what I understand. They they see there are threats and risks out there. Uh, I think it's difficult to choose. Uh, how should we start? How should we prioritize? And which threat is most damaging to our business or our portfolio or operation? Um, so I think it's kind of the, the lack of um, how to proceed and how to start, maybe. Well, sadly, we are finishing, not starting on that topic. And inevitably, we have only scratched the surface of some big questions there. But there, we must leave it for today, at least. And don't worry, we'll be picking up on some of these threads in later editions. For this week, though, I'm going to focus on some of the wider aspects of decarbonisation and the global maritime trends shaping the London Shipping Week debates. So make sure you tune in tomorrow for another edition. My thanks to all of the guests, uh, both today and uh, yesterday. Uh, special thanks again to DNV for sponsoring these daily podcasts. Partnership and collaboration, of course, is a key topic right now, and uh, having the support of sponsors who are furthering the debate in the industry, I think, can only be a good thing. So, thank you, DNV. And thank you all for listening. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there. Mm-hmm.